Our second uh, panelist uh, this afternoon is from the Marshall Islands, uh, Ariana Tiburn. I've had the wonderful pleasure of meeting her in Marshall Islands during my visits there for work. And uh, Ariana works with the Republic of the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission as the Education and Public Awareness Director. She is passionately involved in the work because she is a descendant of the survivors, her family being test subjects of 4.1. Uh, welcome, Ariana, as well. Uh, we would have liked to have you here in person, both of you here with, in person with us. Such are the, the circumstances, and we are hoping that in, in future screenings and opportunities may arise where you may be we may all be together in the same room, but we welcome you and all the other uh, viewers from across USP campuses uh, around the Pacific and others that have access to um, this film that has been live streamed. If you could start us off, please, uh, by telling us a little bit about uh, yourself, the Republic of the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission and the work you do, Madam? Okay. Kumotada Nilesh, it's so great to see you when you went on. I was like, oh, there's Nilesh. <laughs> well, thank you so very much. My name is Ariana Tiwan. I work with the National Nuclear Commission, as Nilesh stated, as uh, Education and Public Awareness Director. And yes, I am also a descendant of survivors, not just from of the exposed atolls, but also from Project 4.1. My great-grandfather's name was Nelson Anjay, and he was the brother of John Anjay in the film. Um, <clears throat> in terms of our work at the Nuclear Commission, the Nuclear Commission, which I'll be mentioning as NNC from now on, was established in 2017, and it was established to address the government's ongoing needs and concerns and whatever issues that have been resolved that relates to the nuclear legacy. And it's so important to note that the nuclear legacy has been like, it's it started 75 years ago for us, and it wasn't until 2017. So since 1946, all the way till 2017, there wasn't really any um, government department or office that addressed the nuclear issues. So once the NNC was established, it, we were able to work closely with SBC and Mr. Nilesh and the Ministry of Education to establish a curriculum that would incorporate the nuclear legacy into school curriculums. So I, I also wanted to add and share to the audience that for me, growing up here in Marsh, I was born and raised here. I didn't learn about the nuclear legacy. There's on March 1st, which is the anniversary of the Bravo shot. That's the um, that's it's a holiday here. And there's usually a ceremony and the schools participate in a peace parade. But all my years being home and being with my family that are descendants and I mean, direct um, 
um, survivors of the nuclear testing. We didn't talk about the nuclear legacy. We did. I didn't learn about Project 4.1. I had no clue, zero, no knowledge that my own family had clinic numbers. And then it wasn't until I left and I I was attending University of Hawaii at Manoa and when I started doing my research into this and I was just so blown away that this was my own history and we knew nothing about it. My my generation did not learn about it. My parents' generation did not learn about it. My grandparents' generation were only toddlers then. And growing up, they they knew things here and there, but they didn't learn about it either because it was not incorporated into the curriculum. And so I'm very grateful to the SBC and for the Ministry of Education in incorporating the nuclear legacy into the curriculum. And I don't know, I, I just wanted to thank everybody. <laughs> I may have been going um, all over the place, but I'm so very grateful for this opportunity. And the film um, that we just watched, Nuclear Savage, it's when I, I, I honestly did not watch this until like maybe 2018, my senior year in, at UH. I just had no idea that all of this. And when I watched it, I was like, wow. And so I've been like, I've been using this film to share with the students here that I go out to do advocacy with. And we're all kind of just trying to piece together the puzzles now, because back then when after the tra after the compact between the Marshall Islands and the United States was established, all the hospital files were burned. And so when people tried to you know, file for claims to get compensation. They lost their hospital numbers because all the charts were burned and all of the photos of jellyfish babies, monster babies, grape or octopus looking babies, those files were burned as well. And so right now our generation is just trying to piece together all the stories. Well, anyways, thank you and yoga to everybody. Thank you, Ariana, for that uh, wonderful um, introduction and sharing your experiences about uh, the nuclear legacy and the issues. And it's a pleasure to work uh, with you and the public school system of the Marshall Islands to integrate some of these issues. This is part of a, a program that we call the Social Citizenship Education Program, where we are um, bringing in um, concepts and principles around human rights, ending violence against women and children and girls, uh, looking at social inclusion issues, and uh, that is being integrated across the Marshallese uh, curriculum, uh, elementary and secondary curriculum from year five onwards. And we have been working very closely with uh, Ariana and the National Nuclear Commission. Um, I have some uh, questions for you, Madam, uh, if you would allow us uh, from the audience. Uh, I, have, I have some friends, they cannot hide today and I'm putting them on notice. I did outside in the foyer. As you can see, Rajan is smiling away there. So is Natasha this side. And uh, well, I think Mr. Thomas has probably uh, left the room. But anyway, uh, the audience uh, may have a few uh, questions uh, for you, Ariana, if you, if you would be so kind. And we'll just pass around the, the mic if we can, uh, so that uh, 
people can ask the questions. The first one, Ms. Natasha Khan. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Nilesh. Um, very, um, how do I say, nerve-wracking movie. Uh, there were parts I was so angry watching that movie itself. Um, the dehumanizing that happened, the, the racism that happened, the lack of acknowledgement, even 50-year celebration where the ambassador was clearly talking about as if people had consented to the process of being um, made into guinea pigs. Um, there was even zero accountability of that process. And uh, the, the, the way they said, you know, thank you for being part of the process as if it was a good thing for them. Um, to me, the, the lack of justice that continues today is painful to watch. The lack of accountability from US government is uh, also, um, it, it's really, I don't know how UN is involved in that, and I would like to see somebody from the UN office in here as he explain the process. I'm not very aware of it. Um, but also your own statement, Ms. Tibon, where you mentioned that you, as, as, as a Marshallese, didn't even know this, did not know that this has happened in your own country where completely there was like an amnesia that happened within a local population because of lack of awareness about it. Um, and, and good that you are integrating that in the curriculum. Is there more discussion in the public forums? Like I saw where the uh, ambassador was talking and the public was sitting, it was mostly Marshallese, but there was no sort of outcry when that statement was made. I, I wonder what's happening in the society. Is, there, is that because of lack of knowledge or is that uh, because, I don't know, the colonial mindset with the Americans that exist uh, within the local population, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm so conflicted by seeing all that. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. madam, for your question. At this moment, I truly be believe because of lack of knowledge, there is not much of a public outcry. Um, and then the other thing, the other side of it is a lot of them, a lot of the um, survivors and their descendants, they kind of have just given up hope. And like when I meet with them and speak with them and talk to them about the work that we do at the Nuclear Commission, I kind of get a sense of like, why do you guys even, um, you know, try to do whatever your meetings you're doing now when it's been so many years and all of the others have passed away and we still haven't gotten any form of justice. There's no cancer care center here in the Marshall Islands. And there's so many different types of cancer and everybody is getting cancer, but we still don't have cancer. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to share that. I think there's just frustration, but then it's like hopeless frustration because a lot of, a lot of the people that I've met with and spoke with, they've kind of lost confidence in our um, government in doing anything because we've negotiated the first compact. The first compact, we actually went into negotiation with all the um, declassified files being withheld from us. So they were still classified and that was in 1986. And so we kind of signed off the first compact agreeing to $150 million as a one-time payment past, present and future. And then, but then it wasn't until 1993 and 94 that the files were declassified and our leaders started to realize that it was just more than four adults that were um, highly affected by the radiation testing, the nuclear testing. But just, I think just in general, there is the, the reaction from the public now is 
just feeling of mostly like they feel like they've lost all hope. And for me and my peers, a lot of my peers, like not just my peers, but people my generation that I like colleagues and stuff, they tell me, why do you really focus and give all your energy to the nuclear commission or do all that nuclear education work when that's all a thing of the past? Why don't you move forward and focus on climate change? Thank you. Thank you, Ariana and uh, Natasha for the question. Do we have, yes, madam, we have a question there. And I'm, I'm yes, and we've got a, a child's hand going up. That's wonderful. We, we want to encourage the children to ask. Ariana goes out to schools and she answers lots of questions. So I want you to feel absolutely free today to ask all that you need to. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ariana, for being here. Um, first time seeing the movie. It's, it's definitely shocking. Um, very timely as well. Today is 35 years since the Treaty of Rarotonga uh, yes. came into force for nuclear-free mm -hmm. Pacific. Um, and, and what you talk about, the losing hope, is, is quite touching because... Um, Obviously, we all know that the kind of the nuclear legacy is, is not only legacy, it's still here. Yes. And the, for instance, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists uh, have kept uh, the famous, infamous uh, doomsday clock in two seconds to midnight for two years now, which is the closest it has ever been uh, to the kind of uh, acute threat of the use of, uh, use of nuclear, nuclear force in international relations. And I know that the Pacific and Pacific countries have been strong promoters uh, of, of NPT and the, the kind of the idea of nuclear free world, but it seems that we are very, very far away from it. And, and the kind of the, the lack of hope uh, reflects on that, that we know that the, the countries that are, have not ratified NPT are the only countries that have nuclear weapons, that have that, that arsenal and, and nuclear, nuclear force. And it seems, um, that kind of talking towards nuclear powers uh, in many respects is like banging your head to the wall in this because they are this kind of real politic and, and national interest. And what you said about the lack of hospitals, um, I was just uh, participating in an event with someone from Maui Nui. And the situation is exactly the same in, in French Polynesia, that the areas that were most affected by nuclear testing do not even have cancer clinics. And of course, part of the rationale here is that if France or United States would establish uh, specialized cancer clinics to these areas would be kind of a implicit acknowledgement of that responsibility. Right, the kind of taking taking responsibility by by being proactive, and if it's the case that that kind of trying to get this message through to U.S. or France or other nuclear powers uh, is kind of banging uh, head to the wall, uh, and because we of course want to restore that hope uh, for the for the survivors, what would you think would be the kind of ways to get the message cross? more powerfully to perhaps other global partners that could be there to, to bring about the global justice to the survivors of nuclear testing. Thank you. Thank you. That is such a hard question. I, <laughs> I wish we could just 
have, I truly believe education is key with this history. And I wish that the United Nations would establish a curriculum where all countries under the United Nations learned about every single nuclear testing um, period in every of every community. And I wish that they could have every children under the United Nations to learn about this and then, you know, participate actively on ways forward and how they should, you know, make change. I just, I just wish, I just wish that this was a United Nations effort and in having everybody, and I say United Nations because it was the trust, this was during the trust territory and the trust territory of the Pacific Islands was established by the United Nations. And our petitions went to the United Nations to halt, to do a, um, to halt the testing, but they weren't heard until years later when there was already so much damage. But I feel like that's like a long-term goal. Immediately, like what can we do now today is to just, talk to our leaders, talk to our representatives, and I don't know, it's hard, or maybe just use social media, and the more we talk about it and amplify it, the more people would be focused on it. I don't know, I, but I, I think, I think the United Nations curriculum would, would work. <laughs> Thank you, Ariana. We have uh, some more questions there. Madam, up there on the, and then we've got uh, a young gentleman in the in the back row as well. I just don't understand why they didn't test, uh, why they, they didn't test on themselves and they did to the Marshallese. I don't understand either. Thank you for sharing. And I wish I, I wish I was there to just, to just be in your presence and so we could hug each other but I don't understand either I have a six-year-old daughter and when she comes with me when I do my outreach she's always asking like mommy so because when they okay so when they started itching after the rate being under the the bomb when they started scratching their skin the skin would peel off and they just went through a lot. And my daughter, my six-year-old, doesn't understand why either. I wish I knew also there, there isn't really a clear answer. How did they decide on Bikini or the Marshall Islands or the Pacific? But we do know that they did start the testing in the United States. And because of complaints by um, U.S. citizens, they decided to relocate their testing program and then they found the Marshall Islands and did the testing here. I don't understand why they had to carry forward with Project 4.1 or why was it even necessary to have such thing as Project 4.1 and test and see how the body reacts to radiation. It's just, to me, it's really heartless and inhumane. Um, Ariana, thank you so much uh, for being here. And uh, to be frank, uh, watching the movie today was uh, 
really distressing. I can't imagine uh, what it must be like for the Marshallese to have lived through it. Um, my actual question is, um, other than the compact uh, that is being negotiated now for the second time, is there other kinds of petitions, uh, especially human right violations that the Marshallese are um, following up on? Because I think this is such a huge violation. Um, and it's not something that can be addressed by money. So while the compact is, is so necessary to ensure that the victims have continued um, compensation, this, these are stories that the world does need to hear. And um, you know, raising these kind of things, uh, especially at the UN and other forums is so critical for the world to understand the legacy of, um, you know, things that various colonial states and um, countries like the US have perpetuated across the world. I mean, the US testings, even like things like Agent Orange and things like that are widespread across the world. And coming from a colonial state, um, which has survived colonization for like 400 years, we understand how people are dehumanized and uh, made into uh, uncivilized savages. So it's really uh, interesting and I would be really grateful to hear what the Marshall Islands is doing about this um, and how it's working with other nations as well. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, so at the moment, nobody is receiving any compensation from, no Marshallese is receiving compensation. The Nuclear Claims Tribunal was established after the first compact in 1986, but the money from that exalted in 2006. And so from 2006 up until today, there's so many people who filed claims like for example, somebody with stomach cancer was entitled to $125,000 compensation, but a lot of them, like a huge percent of them didn't receive full compensation, just, just to address the compensation part. But then in terms of petition, right now there is, there's, I'll just share from my, um, from my point of view, because as an education and public awareness person, when I tried to go out there and when I try to really speak out and share on social media what happened and all that, I'm always being told to be careful so I don't compromise any compact negotiations that's going on now. And so it's kind of hard for us here, the civilians, any Marshallese to just go out there and submit a petition or to take the United States to the International Court of Justice because we're constantly being told to be careful because you might compromise these things. And so just, just my honest answer, the, the only thing our government right now is trying to do is to work on compact negotiations with the United States. And this will be the third compact negotiations. But in 2000, early 2000, I'm, I'm not sure if it was 2001 or 2002, 
our government submitted a um, change circumstances petition. In in our agreement with the United States, we were, there's a CCP clause, change circumstances clause and provision. And it said that if there are any changes to the health or environment of the people of the Marshall Islands, they are allowed to submit a petition stating that all of these changes have happened, signing the first compact. And when our government submitted that petition, the this was during the Bush administration, we were kind of just like ignored for a couple of years. And when we did receive a response, it was from the administration. And they just said that a lot of our um, claims were not valid. So it's like, to me, it's so frustrating because it's like, we're just, we just have to bottle up all our anger and whatever we release, we have to be, be careful with what, whatever information, try not to be too crazy about sharing things like for me because I I really want to say like oh this is all happening but then I don't know I'm always told oh you have to be careful because we don't want to compromise anything any of the talks um and thank you so much uh, Ariana for for being here in our presence virtually I guess I share the same sentiments of the, the previous speakers that this is quite shocking, it's quite distressing, but I also feel that the film sort of like, um, you know, gives this uh, very traumatic uh, uh, emotions around the experiences of the people of Marshalline, uh, the Marshallese. And I guess when I also listen to you around, you know, the, the lack of hope from the people of, uh, from your island. And I feel like it's so important then to, and I, I love the fact that uh, we have um, SPC working with uh, yourself and the governments to ensure that curriculums, are, uh, well, it's embedded within the education system. And I also think it's very important to do similar things with other Pacific Island countries. So then we are able to not just educate, but gain solidarity from the Pacific Island children who are growing up because I am not aware of this until like very recently uh, around the issues of um, nuclear testing in uh, Marshall Islands and et cetera. And I wish I knew because it's also so important when you look forward towards the future and you see like the, 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 the you know, sort of like the, the global dominance of powers and you know, how that interacts within countries between China and the US. And now interestingly, like you have Australia, we have some of these, you know, interests around nuclear submarines and et cetera. It's so important to educate young minds, young leaders who are able to grow and be assertive uh, in terms of like caring for the Pacific Island, not just as a region, but as people, as a, as a common. And uh, I, I don't know, it's just so distressing. And I'm, I'm very, uh, I think very privileged in the sense that I'm able to view this film uh, and just like, you know, have so much to take away from. And another thing that I also wanted to just quickly share, and it's very interesting, is was that uh, the sentiments shared by um, De Broome, 
um, and you know, he said the, he's, he made a, a very, and I felt like it was a very sarcastic remark around, you know, being a, um, a second language. And of course, when we look at it, like the, you know, like how these negotiations, negotiations, etc., around compensation has always been from the Lansing and the experiences of those who have afforded, you know, done this to the people of the Pacific. And so we need to start shifting these narratives, the analysis and negotiation from our perspective so that we hold them accountable, not because, you know, aligning ourselves, because language itself is, a, is very political, you know, the use of language and text and et cetera. And I think it's just, that was the, one of the key takeaways. So thank you so much for your, uh, for your presence with us today. And I also would like to take the, acknowledge the producer of that film. It was, it's such a great film. Inaka. Mr. Young, did you? Nile, mm. shall we ask uh, Ariana if she wanted to respond to Tamani's yes. point first? Ariana. Oh, thank you. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And with shifting mm. the narrative to make it sound like it's, you know, this is our story and you need to be held accountable. And again, this is why education is so important. I just want to share that our leaders now, they're not fully in support of my, like my position. We had a public hearing session and I was being questioned like, oh, so why, why do we even have a education and public awareness department for the nuclear commission? We just need your help in, um, making sure we get compensation. That is just because that generation, the leader, our leaders generation, they weren't, they did not get a chance to learn about the nuclear legacy in school while growing up. And a lot of our senators now, and just a, the majority of the Marshall Islands, we just have no clue about this history. When I go out to do my um, advocacy at the schools, I went to the Marshall Islands High School earlier this year, and there's a total population of about, that's, that's like the most students. I think there's like 500 students. And when I asked them how many bombs were dropped in the Marshall Islands, the biggest number I got was seven. They, the students did not know that there was 67 bombs. And then when I asked how many atolls did they did the testing, they said, oh, just one. They didn't know that Enoedag was there. And a lot, there's just, with the lack of knowledge with about this nuclear legacy, it's hard to go to the negotiating table and be firm and help hold people accountable when all of the reports, all of the findings, all of the studies that we have, all of the data that we have now comes from the United States Department of Energy. So any analysis on the Rune Dome comes from the DOE anything about bikini and radiation in this and sediments samples, they all come from the United States Department of Energy. And so it's just hard to, you know, be like, oh, you are responsible for this and this, and here's our evidence. When we provide the evidence, it's their own um, findings. And so one of the core, um, mandates of the National Nuclear Commission is to establish national capacity building. And with this work with the um, fisheries people, the Marine Resources Authority, and then also work with the Environmental Protection Authority to 
obtain our own to gather information and obtain our own data and samples and to have ownership over this material. But yes, I completely agree with shifting the narrative and holding people accountable. Komol. Vinakariana. Uh, thank you, Nilesh. Um, Vinakariana for joining us. But I, just in response to a couple of questions raised earlier around what is happening. And of course, Nilesh spoke about SBC working with uh, the education department around uh, incorporating these issues in the curriculum. But there's also, just to mention that there's a crop task force on nuclear legacy issues. When I talk, when I say crop, crop is the, the regional agencies in the Pacific, uh, SPC, USP, Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat. And uh, Nilesh has done a bit of work. He's, he's from our division, he's on that, on that task force. And uh, so if the opportunity arises, Nilesh might uh, just talk to some of the things that they're doing, the, the crop, crop um, task force on nuclear legacy issues, and then maybe get a reaction from Ariana as well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Thank Miles. You. I think that's a good point that, have, uh, that you have raised and it kind of speaks to the movement and solidarity and responsibility and accountability and what uh, the Pacific regional architecture and intergovernmental organizations are doing collectively. So with this crop um, interagency, uh, this comprises of uh, Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat. We've got the SPREP uh, program as well. We've got SPC and various divisions of SPC um, that are involved as well as the governments of uh, Marshall Islands, Kiribati, uh, and a few others, etc. There is a work plan, there is uh, an implementation plan, and uh, it furthers or it tries to uh, implement the, the statements and the, the wishes of uh, the Pacific Island leaders as they are expressed when they come together in their annual uh, meetings. Um, and I think because of the work that we do, um, on education, I think uh, we have been able to showcase some of these or answer to some of these queries on uh, education and the work that we are doing in, in the Marshall Islands in particular uh, on this crop interagency forum. Uh, leave it there, and then I think we'll just take one more question from Sir here. Thank you very much, Vinaka, and thank you for joining us, Ariana. I, uh, I have special interest in the topic. I work in cancer prevention and control across the Pacific Islands. And I would like to hear from you what, what to, is your understanding of the 177 healthcare program? And are there any problems that you can see with the way that's structured, if you're familiar with it? Mm. Thank you. Um, so there is, as stated in the compact, there's four atolls that were affected by the nuclear testing, and these four atolls get coverage by the 177 healthcare program. And with this program, a lot of it now is mostly caring for um, people with diabetes and um, hypertension. And once 
one of the a patient from any of these four atolls is diagnosed with cancer, then they're referred. Well, the 177 program, I'm not sure if you were you you've ever been here in the Marshall Islands, but it's a tiny office and they don't have much, they don't have even an x-ray machine in there. It's just kind of like an office with so much medicine inside. And you just go and see the doctor and they give you your medicine, but they don't have a lab there. It's just a tiny clinic and all they're linked to the hospital. They're like, right they're in the back road of the hospital and all the actual, like if you need x-ray blood work, all of those other stuff, you have to go to the hospital, but with cancer patients, they're referred to the hospital and our referral system. If you have stage four cancer, you're not eligible to be referred. If you have stage three, it depends on whether the hospitals would want to take your case or not. And to my understanding, they first send off cases to a tripler, the Army Tripler Hospital in Hawaii, in Honolulu. And if the hospital denies the case, then they would send refer people to the Philippines. And then so I think the 177 program, it's it's doing okay as it is now. From meeting with their director like a few weeks ago, she said they mostly care for people with diabetes and um, high blood pressure. They're not, they don't have any of the tools or any of anything to care for cancer patients. But then with the DOE program, there's the United States DOE program, Department of Energy. They care for only two of the atolls, which were the exposed atolls, Rongla and Wudruk. And they only have, they only provide cancer care supposedly to the survivors of the testing. If like, like for example, my grandparents are survivors, but then they don't have cancer. So they're not really being monitored or anything. But if they did have cancer, then they would really be monitored like twice annually. But um, with the DOE program, the complaints that's coming from those people is that they just feel like they're being monitored and not really treated. They, they just take blood and urine samples and do all sorts of work with them, but they don't feel like any treatment is being provided. And it's hard to go against what the doctors are saying because we're supposed to trust the doctors, but there's not many Marshallese or people of Wudruk and Rongalap that actually went through chemotherapy and then survived chemotherapy and came home. A lot of them, a lot of the cases, as it seems with the DOE, is just sudden um, sudden deaths. And then what they would be told, the family would be told, oh, they had cancer, but we just detected it a couple of months ago. And they're really questioning like, how is it that they don't detect these cancers years on when they're continuously monitoring us twice a year or once a year? How did they not catch the cancer up until the person passed away? I, I think like the whole cancer thing is like way bigger, but that's just how much I can share. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ariana. And I think uh, finally, um, we'll ask Madam uh, Haiki, the regional representative for the Pacific, of the UN uh, Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights based here in Suva uh, for any final comments or questions, Madam. 
Thank you very much, uh, Nilesh and Ariana. Thank you so much for uh, all the um, interesting information and certainly acknowledging also the role and the work of uh, the Commission. Um, I think I was uh, equally um, shocked by the film as, as um, others here in the audience. And there was a question as to what um, was happening in the UN. Of course, the UN is a very big body and I cannot speak on behalf of everybody in the UN, but I just wanted to um, inform that in the UN human rights system, um, the issue of uh, the nuclear legacy has certainly been raised um, many times. Um, the Marshall Islands is, of course, also a member of the Human Rights Council. And as such, it is not only active in the field of uh, climate change, which it has recently uh, really been, been very active in, but also on nuclear legacy issues. And I think it is very important that we continue to articulate these as human rights issues um, so that they, they come out of this sort of charity uh, realm, which, which sometimes they are um, regarded um, or which is sometimes pursued. Um, especially as uh, there are questions around loss and damage and, and you know, uh, compensation and so on. Um, there was a, a visit of the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Environment that was already uh, about 10 years ago. So he reported back to the Human Rights Council in 2012. And of course, he discussed the issues in terms of the right to life, the right not to be displaced from one's homeland, because um, of course there was forced displacement as well, and um, and then redisplacement, the right to health, of course, and various other rights, and it it was very important to see this articulated. I um, believe that this report would be interesting for um, people to read. So, of course, our office can make it available to, to anyone who wishes to read it here. Um, many of the recommendations of the rapporteur, who is an independent expert in the Human Rights Council, are still outstanding um, in terms of what the follow-up um, really should be to those recommendations in terms of also, of course, um, payment of compensation and 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 prevention of, of anything like this happening ever again uh, in any other country in the world. So, but just thank you and acknowledging uh, the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Heike, for that. Uh, before I hand it back over to Aquila uh, for the other formalities, uh, thank you very much for your time for your feedback, your comments, for your questions. And on behalf of the Pacific community, uh, OHCHR, University of the South Pacific, and our donor partners, uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade of Australia, the European Union and Sweden, we want to thank you uh, for being here uh, today. I'm going to... Um, play a little clip of a poem. It's written by Marshallese uh, poet and artist, Kathy Jatniel uh, Kijana. It's called Fishbone Hair. And it is really a portrayal of this particular issue that we have come to view today. Uh, so with this particular uh, poem, I bid you farewell and thank you.
for, for your kindness in coming and for your engagement. The, the pictures that you see up in front, the paintings, um, they speak of the legacy, the justice and the issues at hand. They are part of the publication, SPC's publication, Rising Tide, which is a, a collection of poems around human rights, social justice, and uh, some copies are made available up there at the table and they're available online as well. Uh, you're very welcome to it. And it's part of the work that we are doing on creating education and uh, awareness. Thank you very much. And we'll hear from Ms. Kijuna now. Inside my niece Bianca's old room, I found two Ziplocs stuffed with rolls and rolls of hair, dead as a doornail, black as a tunnel hair, thin as strands of tumbling seaweed. Maybe it was my sister who stashed away Bianca's locks so that no one could see, trying to save that rootless hair, that hair without a home. There had been a war raging inside Bianca's six-year-old bones. White cells had staked their flag. They saw it as their destiny. They conquered the territory of her body. They said it was manifested. It all fell out. I felt bald and blank as Bianca's skull when they closed her casket, hymns wafting into the night sky. Bianca loved to eat fish. She ate it fried, ate it raw, ate it whole. She ate it with its head, slurping on the eyeball jelly, leaving only tiny, neat bones. The marrow should have worked. They said she had six months to live. That's what the doctors told those fishermen over 50 years ago, when they were out at sea just miles away from Bikini. The day the sun exploded, rain split open and rained ash on the fishermen's hair and clothes. On that day, those fishermen were quiet. They were neat. They dusted the ash from their hair, reeled in their fish, and turned around their boat to speed home. There is an old Chamorro legend that the women of Guahan once saved their island from a giant coral-eating fish. They hacked off their longer-than-night-sky hair, wove their locks into a magical net, and then they caught the monster fish, and they saved their islands. Thin, rootless, fishbone hair, black night sky. Catch this ash, catch moon, catch star. For you, Bianca, for you. <laughs> 